basically contemporary of Isaiah. And when we consider where he was and when he was in his prophecy, he fulfilled a significant role. The role that Micah fulfilled was the role of one who was calling both northern kingdom and southern kingdom, two parts of the same country that had been split into two, to come back to the Lord, to stop continuing down the path that they were pursuing, and to come to the place to where they recognized, number one, that they were out of step and out of fellowship with the Lord, and number two, that they needed to come to that place to where they could fellowship with the Lord. That place where they could come and say, I will follow you and stop following the distractions that are all around me. Micah's ministry was important. You see, the nation, both nations, were overrun by idolatry. Idolatry had slipped in to the life and into the culture of both Israel and Judah. And when we look at this idolatry, what we find is this. Many of us think in terms of idolatry as someone bowing down before a stone or a piece of wood or some metal, something that man has fashioned to represent a god or even become that god for the individual. What we don't understand is idolatry is so much more than that. Idolatry represents a thought, a belief system that stands contrary to all that God is and all of his purposes. And what we also sometimes forget is this. There is spiritual power behind the idol. But that spiritual power isn't from God or even a God. It's from demonic influences. The Word of God even shares with us with clarity that idols are doctrines that are inspired by demons. And so there is this draw, this pull that brings people into idolatry. And Micah was there to face this head on. But you know, the beauty of the book of Micah is this. Not only does Micah address sin, Micah also addresses hope. The hope for transformation, the hope for rerouting, it didn't rest in reform. It didn't rest in human beings. The hope for all of us is the Lord. Turning to the Lord is what turns people, reroutes them, puts them on the right path. So we can rejoice in that, even though there are some passages in here that seem to be doom and gloom. Listen, unless you understand the doom and gloom, you can't reroute Unless you understand where you are, you can't see where you need to go. And so that's what Micah begins to do as we come to the first chapter. Micah begins to talk about people's sin against God and the consequences that that kind of lifestyle was bringing them to. So look carefully with me at this first chapter. And what we're going to see is 
the first two chapters of Micah have to deal with two groups of people. The first group in the first chapter would be the northern kingdom, and it's represented by its capital, Samaria. Sometimes when we refer to a nation, we'll refer to the capital as something that refers to the entire nation, right? For instance, we'll say Moscow said, well, what we mean is Russia said. We'll say Washington said, and what we, re- we, we know it means is it's, it's a reference to the entire nation. Well, this is what's going on here. Now, when we come to the first verse, Micah identifies himself. And it says, The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Morsheth during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Now, these would have been roughly right in the middle of the reign of kings in the southern kingdom. Hezekiah was probably the best out of the three. Ahaz was the worst out of the three. And Micah had the responsibility of addressing a nation that had lost perspective and had come to the place to where they were totally abandoning all that God had called them to. The first address, as I said, goes to the northern kingdom. And look at that second verse where it says this. Hear, O peoples, all of you, listen, O earth, all who are in it, that the sovereign Lord may witness against you the Lord from his holy temple. Now, picture a courtroom scene. God is the judge and the prosecuting attorney. Micah is merely speaking on behalf of God. And so what Micah does is he calls as witnesses against those who were sinning the entire world to see how God's people had fallen into sin. And here's the horrible irony of all of this. God had called Israel and Judah to be a witness to the world. Unfortunately, they were witnesses to the world of the wrong thing. They were supposed to represent what do the people of God behave like? How does God live through his people? But because they had turned away from God, that was not being accomplished. Rather than transforming the world around them, they turned to the very sins that those around them were engaged in. And that's brought out as we continue in the text. Look at verse 3, and it says this, Look, the Lord is coming from his dwelling place. He comes down and he treads on the high places of the earth. The imagery is that of God coming from heaven and treading upon high places. Now, when the Bible talks about high places, it's not referring to mountaintops or the tops of high buildings. High places throughout the Old Testament represented places where pagan deities were worshipped. Very often when a person would have a shrine or an altar to a pagan god, they would find a high hill, and they would place the altar on top of the high hill, and they would bow down and they would worship it. And what God is saying in this text is a warning to people who set up those high places in their kingdom and in their lives that God is offended by these things and that he will come And he will bring consequences for those who pursue the immorality and the idolatry 
of the pagan nations around them. You know, as we look at this, isn't it easy for us to fall into the trap of embracing the culture around us? We can adopt the values. We can adopt the priorities. We can adopt the philosophies of the world around us. And in so doing, we can abandon the teachings of God. And we can fall into the same trap that Samaria had fallen into in this text. We can fall into the trap of leaving our Creator and worshiping the created. We can fall into the trap of coming to the place to where we allow other things to take the place of God in our lives. This is what happened with the people of Israel. Samaria was engaged in these things. Look at verse 7. In verse 7 it says this, All of her idols would be broken to pieces. All of her temple gifts will be burned with fire. I will destroy all her images. She has gathered her gifts from the wages of prostitutes. As the wages of prostitutes, they will return and be used. Now, what is Micah saying in this text? Idolatry was parallel to spiritual adultery. Israel had entered a covenant relationship with God. They had promised to be his people, to follow his commands, to do as he said. But they had turned from the living God to worship idols. These were offensive to God, and God was promising that those idols would not last. All that they were putting their hopes in would be dashed to pieces. And God was saying that they had become like the temple prostitutes who were a large part of the pagan idolatry culture. You see, what was so appealing about many of those who, the the religions that worship these idols was this. They opened the door for license morally. As a matter of fact, many of the false religions during the time that Micah writes, many of the false religions involved gross immorality. The temples that were built for their gods would employ temple prostitutes that people would go to and sleep with in order to worship their idol. Attendance was very good, as you might imagine. God was saying that the reality of that has also shown the reality of their spiritual adultery. They had committed to God, and just as a husband would leave his wife and go sleep with another constitutes actual adultery, leaving your covenant with God and going to others constitutes spiritual adultery. So the northern kingdom is being called on this. But you know, the message of Micah was not just for the northern kingdom We're going to skip ahead, and we're going to go to the second chapter. 
Because in the second chapter, we find something else. The southern kingdom is also addressed for the sin that was rampant in it. In the southern kingdom, not only did they have idolatry, but their idolatry was something a little more subtle in addition to the idols that they worshipped, and that was the god of materialism. Look at chapter 2, and it says this to the people of Israel. Woe to those who plan iniquity, to those who plot evil on their beds. At morning's light, they carry it out because it is in their power to do it. Now, do you catch what Micah is saying in this text? The people would lay awake at night thinking, what can I do? Get ahead. I'm not concerned about whether or not it's right or wrong. I'm thinking in terms of can I get away with it? So they're calculating. How can I abuse the people around me? How can I manipulate them? How can I overpower them? And in so doing, get what I want. No concern for the needs of the people. Only concern, will I get caught? Can I pull it off? You know, in the last 3,000 years, man has not changed, has he? They have not changed at all. That still goes on today. How can I plot? How can I get away with this? And then look at what follows Verse 2 of chapter 2, they covet fields and seize them, and houses and take them. They defraud a man of his home, a fellow man of his inheritance. Here's the problem. These people were plotting and planning what to do, do the most evil that they could, take the possessions of the helpless... And God found that offensive. Why? Because God finds people more important than things. And his people should as well. The word of God is telling us that these were people who said, can I get away with it as soon as they calculate that they can? Never mind the moral ramifications. I'm going to do it because I can get away with it. And there's nothing that can stop me from overtaking them. How cruel. How awful. That's what these people were doing. Now, as we go on in the second chapter, starting in the sixth verse, we find that Micah begins to talk about a problem that was existing right alongside the spiritual climate that characterized both the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom. And you know what it was? The prophets. The prophets, who were supposed to be spokesmen for God, were false prophets. So you know what they did? They started speaking against Micah. Don't believe what Micah has to say and Isaiah has to say. We're all right. God isn't going to bring judgment against us. We are God's people, and we need never worry about finding consequences 
for what we do. What we're doing isn't really that bad. As a matter of fact, if you look like it, you know, at it in the right way, it's actually good that we're doing. They were rationalizing their sin. One of my favorite verses in Micah is the 11th verse when he's talking about these prophets. This really sums it up. Verse 11, if a liar and deceiver comes and says, I will prophesy for you plenty of wine and beer, he would be just the prophet for this people. They wanted their ears tickled. They wanted somebody that came and say, something good is going to happen to you today. That's what they wanted to hear. Positive messages. Don't talk about sin. That's awkward. Talk about all the good things that God's going to bring to our lives. They missed God's message because of the false teachers who had come in. And isn't that a picture of what happens so often today? Be careful about what you say. You might offend someone. And then they won't be back to hear what you have to say the next Sunday. Well, guess what? The Word of God sometimes addresses sin, often does, and we need to address it too. Ignoring it and hoping that no one talks about the elephant in the room in no way deals with what God would have us want to deal with. You can't reroute if you don't recognize your problem. That's what Micah is doing. He's bringing straight to the people the areas that they needed to reform in. Now there's warning with this. Look at verse 16 of chapter 1. For the northern kingdom, there was a warning that was given to them that would be fulfilled in just less than a decade or less than a few decades And the warning is this, they would be taken into exile. Look at the warning. Shave your heads in mourning for the children in whom you delight. Make yourselves as bald as the vulture for they will go from you into exile. Couldn't be clearer, could it? Because of their sin, the northern kingdom was going to face terrible consequences. You see, the power players that were pushing the structure of idolatry, the power players that were pushing materialism, they all thought that they could escape any consequences because of their position. But what God is saying clearly in his word is, you can't escape the consequences. They're coming. In 722 B.C., The northern kingdom was taken into captivity, into exile by the Assyrians. So here the word of God brings that warning crystal clear decades before it happened. Did the people listen? Absolutely not. Then we go to chapter 2. Look at chapter 2, verse 3. In chapter 2, verse 3, we find a similar warning, but this is a warning that comes to the southern kingdom. Now, the southern kingdom thought, hey, we are powerful because we have the temple of God, and God would never do anything to a people that has Jerusalem and his temple. And look at what God says to them in chapter 2, verse 3. 
I am planning disaster against this people from which you cannot save yourselves. You will no longer walk proudly, for it will be a time of calamity. In that day, men will ridicule you. They will taunt you with this mournful song. We are utterly ruined. My people's possession is divided up. He takes it from me. He assigns our fields to traitors. Wow, powerful consequences coming as a result of turning away from God. And so Micah wants these people to listen, to understand the predicament that they're in. And he goes on to discuss all of the consequences that they'll experience. And that's a large part of the first part of the book of Micah, these terrible consequences. But you know, that's not where Micah ends. In the midst of discussing the consequences, Micah also talks about provision for God's people. And it's a promise from God. If we were to just read the judgment passages, we might think that Israel would be so destroyed they would never recover. But you know what? God had made a promise to his people, to Abraham, that the nation Israel would continue. So Micah is not only a book that talks about the terrible sin of man, but it's also a book that talks about the faithfulness of Almighty God. And I want us to look at a few of the passages that give hope in the midst of all of this terror. We need to look and understand that prophecy very often has both near and far applications. The near applications for Israel and for Judah were, look, you're going to face consequences for turning away from God. If you want to live like there's no God, I'll let you experience that. You can experience the fullness of that if that's the course you want to follow. That was the near application. But there's a far application. And that far application is this. I am the covenant God. And I fulfill my promises. And I promised Abraham that the nation Israel would continue to exist and that there would be a king who would come and reign, and I am fulfilling that promise as well. So look at this promise that's given. First of all, in the second chapter, look at verses 12 and 13. The promise to the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom is this. I will surely gather all of you, O Jacob, I will surely bring together the remnant of Israel. I will bring them together like sheep in a pen, like flock in its pastures. The place will throng with people. One who breaks open the way will go before them. They will break through the gate and go out. Their king will pass through before them. The Lord is at their head. You know what he's promising? People, there will come a time where you will overcome those who are overcoming you. There will come a time where I will regather this nation that has been exiled all over the world. And I will bring them back to the land that God promised Abraham. And I will be their king. 
great promise that we find in this text. What he's promising them is the fulfillment of his promise to Abraham and a king who will reign over them. And that's brought out crystal clear in this text. You know, when we look at the world around us, particularly in the past few months, we see a mess, don't we? We look and we just see disaster. Every morning, I'm afraid to turn on the news because of what could have happened during the night while I slept. Our world is in shambles. And let me tell you something. This world is not going to straighten itself out. No person, no party is going to straighten the mess that our world is in out. There's only one who can, and that's God. And listen, the scripture tells us that it's going to get worse before it gets better. That's the reality that we live in. But one day, when God makes things better, They're better for good. We see a blip of good here and there. And we have a glimmer of hope. But they're quickly dashed. One change in regime. One change in thought. And that can go away. But there's coming a time where God will bring a peace that lasts. Turn with me to the fourth chapter. And this is another part of the provision that God makes for his people. In chapter 4, verse 2, we find the word of God say this, Many nations will come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. Now this is talking about a time that is yet to come, a time in the future, a time where Israel will raise to prominence Because as the people of God, the King, the Lord Jesus Christ, will have Israel in the promised land, fulfilling the promises. This is the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ that's coming and that will sort these things out. And so rather than nations ganging up on Israel, the promise is that there is coming a time where people will flock For teaching, look at what it says. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk his paths. The law will go out from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So during this reign of Christ, there's going to be a transformation of people. And they will follow God and they will follow the promises of God. Verse 3 says, he will judge between many peoples and will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. Do you catch what happens when Jesus is in charge? Rather than having to go with diplomacy and saying, hey, we know you have despicable behaviors, but we're afraid you'll nuke us if we say anything too offensive, so we have to just kind of walk around the edges. What happens when Jesus reigns, when his kingdom is on earth? That goes away. Jesus says, stop, and they stop. No sleeper cells, no plea bargaining, no diplomacy. 
Jesus sees to the peace of this world. In the third verse, one of the more familiar images from the promises of the prophets is this. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Oh, for that day to come. But it doesn't come until Jesus does. We have a sin-sick, messed-up world. But the far prophecy, our hope, is the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ when he sets these things right. It's going to get worse before it gets better. But when it's better, it's better for good. That's the promise that we find here in the Word of God. Look at what else we find. Turn to Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Micah 5, verse 2. The promised Messiah will reign in power and righteousness. You know, this is one of those passages that we generally just read at Christmas time. And it talks about the birth of the Messiah. And it says, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come... For me, one who is to be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Right in the midst of all of this prophecy concerning destruction comes the prophecy of the King of Kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's no ordinary man. It says that his origins are from old, from ancient times. He will be the ruler. He will be the king. The Lord Jesus Christ, born in an obscure village, will become he who reigns in this world. That's something we can give thanks for. A promise that we can look forward to. A promise that God will fulfill. Not on the basis of man's performance, but on the basis of God's faithfulness. He will see to it transpiring. One final theme that I want us to look at in the book of Micah. We've seen a near prophecy. We've seen a far prophecy. But now there's a message to the people who were the audience of this book. And that is this. There is time for you as individuals to get right with God. It's easy to look outside and say, yeah, we live in a sin-sick world. We live in a terrible world. It's just not going to get better until Jesus comes back. But sometimes we forget, you know what? God just doesn't talk to nations. He talks to individuals. And there were individuals that needed to listen and stop looking at the wrong all around them and look to themselves and ask, what do I need to do? Myself to be right with God. And that's what we find here in the sixth chapter. Micah is giving us a return to the courtroom scene, and he's talking about the accusations that people had made against God. Can you believe that? People making accusations against God? And the gist of what they were saying is, God, you expect too much of us. 
Actually, in verses 6 and 7, that's the upshot of what they're doing. They're saying, with what shall I come before the Lord, verse 6, and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? In other words, do I do excess in what I sacrifice and give to God? It goes on from there to say, would the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? And then, this extreme, shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? They were looking for outward ways to offset their sinful ways, and they were going to extremes in doing that. But this is the part of the message I want you to listen to carefully. God answers what he wants of them and what he wants of us. And it's right there in the eighth verse. He has showed you, O man, what is good. You're asking, what is something that God would consider good? God has already told us in his word what is good. And it boils down to basically three things. To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. We are to pursue humble obedience when it comes to our relationship with God individually. Now think about what's being described for us in this text. When God says, act justly, you know what he's saying? I want your behavior to match up with what God has said is right and good and just. Let me tell you something. If I leave it to myself... As to what is right and good, I am a primo rationalizer. I'm great at coming up for, with, with reasons for why I did something and why it's okay in this situation. Aren't we all? We love to justify ourselves. There's only one place where we see justice laid out for us, and that's in God's Word. But we're not just to familiarize ourselves with, hey, what is right, what is just. We're to practice it. We're to do it. That's why the Word of God says to act justly, to do justice. This is what God wants of us. As a nation and as individuals, we should pursue that humble obedience. Look at the next requirement. To love mercy. Now the word for love, when it says love mercy, is a powerful one in the original language. It's a word that carries with it the idea of intimate devotion. A deep-seated commitment. And what it's saying we're to be deeply committed to is mercy. Now this word translated mercy in this text is translated in various ways throughout the Old Testament. It carries with it the idea of loving kindness, 
of grace. As a matter of fact, many see it as the Old Testament counterpart to the New Testament concept of grace. We are to love that. We are to be committed to that. And we are to dispense that to those around us. And then look at the last one, to walk humbly with your God. You know what it means to walk humbly with your God? It means I take me off of the pedestal and I put God there. It means that I come to the place to where I stop making things all about me and I start making things all about God. That's humility. That's coming to terms with a recognition that God is worthy of my devotion, of my love, of my obedience. And listen, it's not out of duty, it's out of love. I love God and am grateful to God for what he has done to me, for the mercy that he has shown me. So the most logical response to who God is is to obey him, not as a load that's laid on me, but as an opportunity to express my devotion and love to him. That's the idea. Plenty of religions have oppressive regulations that people are to follow, and they fall short. God's regulations guide us in what it is to love him and what it is to love one another. And it shows us how to humble ourselves and to walk with him in deep intimacy. One more thing. As we come to the seventh chapter, we find that we're to put our hope in God and not those around us. You know, as Micah was in this position as prophet, and he looked at the sin that was all around him, and he thought, oh man, am I in a messed up society. It's easy to become discouraged. It's easy to come to that place to where we say, why bother? Why even try anymore? The world is so messed up, no matter what I do, it's going to just keep on being messed up. And that's what happens when we look at the circumstances and the events around us. But as the people of God, we need to look to God. And this perspective is given to us in the seventh verse. But as for me, I watch and hope for the Lord. I will wait for God, my Savior. My God will hear me. Do you catch what he's saying there? If I make people or processes around me my hope, I will be sorely disappointed. I'll give up. I'll go through a cycle of hope and disappointment on a continual basis. But what happens when I put my hope in Almighty God, in His promises. There's a rock there. There's something that we can cling to. There's stability and strength. People will always disappoint us, but God never does. So we need to make God our hope. We need to wait for God, our Deliverer, our Savior, to come through in his time and count on the fact that God always hears us. And why does he hear us? Because he is the God of grace. Closing part of this sermon and this passage. Chapter 7, 
verses 18 and tw- through 20. Look at the beauty of these words. I'm so thankful that Micah closes with this thought. Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? All of the idols of the people around Israel couldn't wait for people to mess up so that they could bring horrible consequences. It was a motif in many of the writings of those who followed these religious systems. Their gods were petty and austere. Not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible pardons sin and forgives transgression. That's his heart. That's what he seeks to do. I'm so thankful that we have a God like that. But it goes on. God was angry with the children of Israel in that moment, in that time, because of their sin. They needed to repent to experience this pardon and this forgiveness. But there's this hope that's held out in verse 19. You will have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl our iniquities into the depths of the sea. The hope of God's compassion. God is a God of compassion and grace. He loves to extend it to people who need it, sinners. And when he deals with our sin, which he did on the cross of Jesus Christ, it's dealt with completely. The imagery of taking sin and throwing it into the deepest part of the sea is what's at play here. Inaccessible to people in that day. You might dive down 100 feet as long as you can hold your breath that long, but that's about as far as it goes. Take it down a few thousand feet. God has taken our sin and he has cast it away. That is the kind of forgiveness, the kind of pardon that God gives. And it comes through the promised one that was discussed earlier, the Lord Jesus Christ. Look, we live in a a world that is a mess. It's not a new thing. Our world has been a mess since the fall of man. But we have a God who wants to extend to us his grace, his mercy. That was demonstrated on a hill almost 2,000 years ago when the Lord Jesus Christ came and accepted on himself the sin of a world that sinned against him, that sinned against the Father. And that death on the cross opened the way for us to experience the grace of God and the forgiveness of God. All we must do is turn from our sin to God and embrace by faith what God so freely provides. So this morning, if you have never come to that place where you've trusted Jesus and what he provides for you by his death on the cross, you can do that this morning by expressing your faith in the forgiveness that Jesus provides. If you have, what only makes sense is to put your hope in the God who delivers. Stop putting your hope in the things around you. 
Stop getting distracted by the things that can draw you away from your focus on God. Focus on him. He is our hope. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you for the reminder that it is to us that in Jesus there is hope. Immediately for the sinner who turns to him and experiences the forgiveness that he provides. And in the future for this sin-sick world when he will return and reign forever as King of Kings, Lord of Lords. How thankful we are for him. And we praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.